All right, so we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19 this morning. End of chapter 18, start of 19. So I want to take a second um, to pray before we get into this. And the, I mean, it's always good to pray, but I have a specific reason, which is we're getting into some stuff this morning that I'm very aware for some of us is a scary topic. It touches kind of kind of deep stuff that maybe you don't want to talk about or maybe you don't want others to know that you struggle. And, it's, and I just want to start by praying so that we don't spend half the time um, wondering if, if it's safe for you to open your heart to God in this way. I want to just start by asking the Holy Spirit to open your heart up because I want you to encounter God this morning. Does that make sense? And so can we just take a second to pause and pray? I know we've already prayed like twice this morning, but, you know, you can never pray too much, right? It's all right. So let's do that for a second. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now that this would be, the next 30 to 45 minutes would be covered and protected by your Spirit. God, that there'd be no miscommunication. And God, that everyone in this room would encounter you in the place where you want to encounter them. God, that our hearts would be open to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you remember last time, we talked about Elijah on Mount Carmel confronting the prophets of Baal and Jezebel, their, their ringleader, right, the wife of King Ahab. And this epic battle ensues where fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar that Elijah made. And it's pretty clear at that point that God is the real God, and Baal is not just a false god. He doesn't exist at all. Referring to him as a him is, is, is silly. It's like it's, he's a nothing. He does not exist. He's a fabrication. He cannot do anything, right? And this, it is pretty clear. I often uh, say that, you know, atheists always claim, well, if God would just come down and, and show himself, like physically right in front of me, uh, then I would believe in him. And I said, no, you wouldn't. You absolutely would not. You, you, would, you would say, it's not real. It's a hallucination. Um, it was photoshopped. It was something. But you would not believe. And my case in point is that story. Because what happens after that epic victory, unmistakable, they were all there. And they all saw it. They saw Baal not answer and do nothing. And then they saw God answer and do everything, and yet still the idols in Israel remained. The Asherah poles, the temples, the sacred high places where they worshiped false idols all remained in place. And they just found more prophets of Baal to lead false worship to a false god. And then on top of that, Elijah becomes the number one most wanted man. All right, so we're going to read about that, and Elijah goes through a pretty difficult time after this, after this amazing victory. All right, um, I want to recommend a book to you up front because I'll forget if I wait. It's um, it's by uh, Pastor Zach S. Wines, one of my favorite authors. If you haven't read any of his stuff before, read it. And he wrote a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows, and it's a book looking at Charles Spurgeon and his struggles with depression. 
And he, Spurgeon referenced the story we're going to look at this morning quite a bit. All right? And, and Zach Eswine kind of does the, if you don't like reading old dead guys that write complicated sentences, this book is for you. Because he does all that work. He reads Charles Spurgeon for you and then tells you, kind of, kind of puts it together in a great story. All right? So that's a wonderful book. Uh, and I used some of the content of that book um, looking at this story. Okay, so 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel arguably is the most powerful person in the land, not King Ahab. She, at this point, has complete control of Ahab. Ahab is a weak leader, he's a weak man, he's weak-minded, and she has control over him, but she doesn't have the title, which is, like, what's better than being king? It's having all the power of a king, but none of the responsibility. That's Jezebel. And she sends word to Elijah and says, you killed all my 450 prophets of Baal, and she swears on her own life that she will do the same to Elijah by tomorrow. And she has all the power and resources to make that happen. This is a very real and very scary threat. This is not an idle threat. This is not bluffing. This is not bullying. This is not a bunch of, you know, uh, saber rattling. This is a real threat, and she is going to kill Elijah. Her anger probably has more to do with, I think, with the damage he did to her efforts to establish Baal worship and gather power in Israel than I don't think she actually cared that much about her 450 prophets. She's not the type to care about such things. I think she's really mad because she got shown up and her power was diminished temporarily. (laughs) So this is no small threat. If you and I were under this threat, we would also be scared. We would also be running for our life. And look at what Elijah does. This is chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. So we're just reading on. He says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, otherwise known as a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah is often criticized, at least I've often heard him criticized here. People look at him incredulously and say, you just, you were just on Mount Carmel and you saw this epic, you know, thing happen. You prayed and fire came from heaven. I don't know about you, but I've never seen fire from heaven. 
And then you turn around and you pray, and it rains. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Then you go and you tell everybody, go home, it's going to rain. You go and you pray, you kneel before God, and rain comes. Not just a little sprinkle, but a torrential downpour comes when you pray. And now, you're, hanging, you're sleeping, you've given up, you said, enough is enough. I can't do it. And we criticize Elijah. I think that's a real mistake. Because God does not criticize Elijah here. Elijah's under a very real threat, a very real disappointment. It's not just the threat of Jezebel. It's the failure of his mission. His mission was to bring the people into unity with each other. Remember when he's called them together, he's put the 12 stones, and he says, this is you, you're one nation, you're one people, you're not divided, and stop worshiping this God that doesn't exist, right? And it fails. They don't listen to him. He wins the contest, but they don't listen to him. He's disappointed, and he's probably going to die. So he crawls underneath the juniper tree, curls up in the fetal position, I imagine, says, enough is enough. God, just take me home. I'm done with all of this. I'm done. I quit. I think this is maybe the clearest example of depression in the entire Bible. Charles Spurgeon, I mentioned to you already, suffered from long bouts of depression throughout most of his adult life. And he often referenced this story about Elijah as being a great comfort to him. If you know Charles Spurgeon's story is that he was, he, he, he was one of the first preachers in history to gather enormous crowds, thousands of people. And he gathered for one of the first times when he saw a crowd this large, and he's preaching the gospel, and someone, as a prank, yells, fire. And everyone panics, and right in front of him, as he's preaching, he sees people get trampled and killed, including children. And after that, he goes home and he plunges into a deep, dark depression, cannot even open his Bible without shaking and almost fainting from the trauma of seeing what he saw. Because he was preaching the Word of God when it happened. And for the rest of his life, off and on, he wrestled with these long periods of melancholy, depression, difficulty. He stands up to preach sometimes and he gets hit with just Memories of, look, I mean, imagine looking out like into the crowd trying to preach and having remembrances of people being trampled to death in front of you, hit you as you're preaching. That would happen to him. And it became a part of his ministry. He would go places to preach and people would line up where he was staying who were also wrestling with this kind of depression, asking him, how do you do it? And he would minister, spend hours ministering to them and counseling them, one after another after another, before and after he preached. It became a part of his life. And he looked at Elijah, and it gave him hope. We learn a lot of things from Elijah's time under the juniper tree, and then in a second, hiding in a cave. We'll read that in a moment. One of them is simply that sadness is not a sin. You need to hear that. Sadness is not sin. It's not. At no point is Elijah told by God or anyone else, suck it up, get up, and let's go. Everyone experiences depression at some point in their life. 
It's a normal response to tragedy, failure, disappointment. If someone you love dies, don't you think it's appropriate to be sad? Of course it is. It's actually inappropriate to not be sad. If you're not sad when you lose someone, then what did that person actually mean to you? So your sadness actually honors them, doesn't it? Sadness cannot be sin by itself. Some people find that they are unable to pull out of that depression. So you go, I always think of it like a line graph because I'm a nerd, right? So you're, you're kind of going, your mood's like this. You're happy, everything's good, everything's balanced. Something happens to you and you plunge, you know, the dopamine and serotonin goes out of your system and suddenly you just feel dead inside. And sometimes it doesn't go very deep and it doesn't last very long and you go right back up. Or you're going along and you get a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. Boom, boom. You plummet. Maybe it goes really deep and it lasts for a long time and then you kind of come out of it. Or you go up and you do. Some people, for whatever reason, might be genetic. For them, it's deeper and longer than others. And sometimes you, it becomes like a physiological like repetition where you, sometimes you can't even point to a thing that happened to you. And it just sends you, and you don't even know where it came from. It's like it knocks on the door for no reason, just thought it stopped by. It says, hey, let's be depressed for a week. What do you say? And you're like, no thanks, too bad. Boom, down you go. This is not an indication of a lack of faith or sin or unbelief. You need to hear that. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you learn nothing else from Elijah's story, is to understand this is not a thing to be ashamed of or feel condemned about. This is just part of life. Some things hit you, and it takes you a minute to recover. Sometimes you're just so disappointed, you need a second. You need a second to wallow in it and just be in it and have your feelings. And having your feelings is not sin, okay? Now, sin gets involved, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We need to learn to be patient with sadness and never be ashamed of it. Christians, we should be good at mourning. We should be good at it. We should be good at being able to be sad for a minute and understand what God's heart is towards us in that moment because that makes us good at comforting other people. Because when you're good at being sad, you'll be good at helping other people be good at sad, right? If you're terrible at it and you refuse to admit it and you, you hide it and you're embarrassed by being sad, you're embarrassed by being depressed, you're, you're, you're trying to hide it and pretend like you're not, then when someone else is in that place, one, they will not tell you about it because you've never told them. And number two, you won't be very good to them. You won't be able to be very helpful to them. Elijah is not rebuked by God throughout this story. When I realized this, it it blew me away. I'll be honest with you, because I've struggled with depression off and on throughout my life since I was little. Here, they just sometimes there's a reason, sometimes there's not. Sometimes I just don't feel good. I'm not going to ask for a, raise, a hand raise, but a lot of you experience the same thing. Sometimes you just get up in the morning and you don't feel good, and it takes a while to feel good. You're making yourself do your life, not because you want to, but because you just have to. 
And when I saw that God, I'm looking for it. I'm like, where is God going to yell at me through Elijah for being sad? Where I'm looking, and I, I don't see it. I'm going to go back and read it again. I must have missed it. I must have missed the part where God shows up and says, Elijah, suck it up, let's go. And I kept looking and looking and looking and looking, and finally I was like, wait a minute, it's not there. So where does that idea come from? It comes from bad preaching, and it comes from a wrong idea of God's heart for me. That sadness is not sin. Any reflex on your part to condemn Elijah for this moment of grief is a reflection of your own wrong view of weakness, not a reflection of God's heart. You need to see that. So what does God do in response? If he doesn't condemn Elijah for laying under the juniper tree and wanting to die, what does God, how does God respond? We just read it. Elijah laid down, prayed that he would die, and God answered him by sending an angel to feed him and watch over him as he slept. So number one, let me, we need to talk about the wanting to die thing. Okay, that's important. Not wanting to live anymore is not the same as being suicidal. There's a real distinction. A suicidal person has a plan of action. They can imagine the steps they plan to take. They have been pushed to the point of being willing to cross over into taking their own life. That is different from despair and disappointment. It's different from recognizing that life is hard and life with God is better and easier. Right? So if you've ever been like, what is life for? Why is it so hard? Why do I have to keep doing it? If you've never been there before, you haven't lived long enough. Okay? It's hard sometimes. And sometimes it feels pointless. It feels like all your effort gains nothing for you or the people around you. And when you get to that place, you need to remember Elijah. And it's normal. It's not good. It's not good to be there. Elijah's not in a good place. Okay? It's not where we want to be. But you're not paying attention if you think life is easy. And you can't understand why other people look at their life sometimes and just want to quit. Because sometimes it's just hard and you can't see what the point is. And that's okay. I still don't think that's sin. Elijah has lost hope. He has, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he has despaired of life itself. Paul said that they were so under attack and things were so hard, they despaired of life itself. In other words, what is, the life is no longer fun. I don't enjoy this, and I don't want to do it anymore. But what Paul said is he went to God, just like Elijah does, he went to God with that, and God's answer was to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's how Paul solves that dilemma. He says, I can't decide if I want to live or die. Because it's hard, and being with Jesus would be pretty great right now, and this is pretty hard, but I'm submitted to Christ. I'm submitted to Him. And I'm gonna, every minute I live, I'm going to live as unto Him. It's for His glory. He's in charge of whether I live and die. And by the way, that's how you get out of suicide. It's how, you, how, how the Christian escapes suicidal thoughts. You just say, my life is submitted to God. Every breath, every heartbeat, every moment 
is his, and I would love for him to take me. But I'm going I'm to submit to him. And if he keeps me around five more minutes, okay, I'll do it. If it's not five minutes, praise Jesus. Right? That's how you get out. You don't try not to be sad. You don't be, grow impatient with the sadness. Instead, you say, I'm submitted to Christ. That's exactly what Elijah does. What is, who is he telling this information to? He laid down under the juniper tree, and he talks to God. And he prays to him and says, take me. I don't want to live anymore. That's what he does with that pain and that hopelessness and disappointment. And that's what you do too. So despair is not good. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I'm not saying this is good for him to be here. Despair is not good. We don't want to stay there. We're not meant to be there. The default mode for a Christian should be joy. We've talked about that during Christmas. But what's most important is what we do with our despair is we take it to God. We confess that you see no hope in life right now and you submit your living and your dying to him and to him alone, right? So the second thing we can learn from this, just what we've read so far, is the first thing that God does is help Elijah, to help Elijah is tell him to eat and take a nap. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, what, what moms do right? You come in, you're cranky, you're not in a good place, and a mom says, here, let me make you a grilled cheese sandwich. Honey, why don't you lay down on the couch and take a nap? Are you hangry? <laughs> it was just the best thing I think I've read in the Bible in a long time. It's wonderful. God addresses his physical needs with tenderness and compassion. You see the tenderness and compassion. There's no disappointment. There's no frustration from God. There's no anger. There's no hurried kind of, we got work to do, so hurry up and get over it. There's patience and there's comfort. He says, hey, have a sandwich, take a nap. You know, Heather Cotton's grilled cheese sandwiches solve a lot of problems. (laughs) It just really do. Bad sleep and bad diet are also big contributors to depression. And they're usually the first things to go when you're depressed. You start just eating terrible stuff or not eating at all. And you don't sleep well. And it makes it worse. But more importantly, we need to see that God does not respond to Elijah's depression with a rebuke. Instead, he moves gently and miraculously to minister comfort to him. God doesn't even try to wake him up. He just lets him lay there and sleep and watches over him. God will meet you where you are, no matter how deep and dark the hole you're in. He does not say, climb out of the hole and then I'll meet you. He climbs down in the hole with you. He crawls under the juniper tree with you. And he says, here's a sandwich. Actually, I think it was a cake. That's, that's even better. A cake and some water, and a nap. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds good right now. <laughs> Let's just end the service, and we're like, it's biblical. I got a verse. I'm eating a cake, and I'm taking a nap. That's what I'm doing today. Right? It's a wonderful thing. God's interested. He meets you where you are, right there on the ground, hiding from him. 
He comes to you under the juniper tree with perfect patience and wisdom. So let me just say this to you. If you're in a hole right now, don't, don't try to climb out at the moment. Just let God come to you this morning. Let God send his ministering angels down into the hole with you. Stroke your hair, whatever it is you like. Like for me, it's just being scratched right back here. And cake, but scratched back here. Right? Let, just let him minister to you that way. With no shame and no guilt. Okay, so God kind of coaxes Elijah out from under the tree this way, right? He, he says, hey, buddy, just take a nap. Here's some food. Then he coaxes him out from under the tree. He says, all right, I, I, got, I can't stay here. He kind of snaps out of it, but he's still depressed. And he travels from the juniper tree to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the same mountain where Moses encountered the burning bush and it was commissioned by God to deliver the Israelites in Exodus 3 through 4. It's also the mountain where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and sent him back down to the people with his face glowing with the glory of God in Exodus 20 to 24. This is a, not just a random mountain that Elijah is going to. He's going to the place where he knows God is. Temple's been defiled. Israel's been defiled. Judah's been defiled. But he goes to Mount Horeb, the last place where everybody saw God. That's where he goes. So look at verses 9 to 14. It says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Some people believe that this is the cave where Moses hid we don't know, it doesn't say that, but it's a fun thought, right? It would make sense. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So you'll see all of this play out historically. God gives him some instructions, which we'll read in just a second. But this is the first time God has spoken directly to Elijah. Before this, he sent angels. This is the first time the prophet has had a conversation with God in the middle of his depression. And what does God do? The first thing God does is he asks him a question. I hate it when God asks questions. Because he's never asking for information. Remember Adam and Eve hiding in the garden? Adam, where are you? God knows where he is. But he wants to hear it. God is coaxing Elijah into prayer. He says, why are you here? What are you doing here? 
Why did you come all this way to this mountain, to this cave, Elijah? Elijah's there in hopes of meeting with God. God knows this, and he's not asking for information. He wants Elijah to pray. So Elijah's answer is honest, but it's also full of half-truths. It's also full of self-pity. Elijah has been zealous, that's true, until recently. Until Jezebel threatened him and the people disappointed him. Now his zeal is gone, as evidenced by the fact that he's been sleeping under a juniper tree and hiding in a cave. His zeal is gone. The entire nation of Israel is not after him, only Jezebel. He is alone as a prophet, but there are also 7,000 in Israel that have not worshipped Baal and are just as worthy candidates of God's call as Elijah is. We'll read about those 7,000 in just a second. This is self-pity has attached itself to his depression. Self-pity is a nursemaid to depression. It comes along and feeds it with half-truths, which are also half-lies, by the way. So that our depression can become worse than it needs to be. Self-pity holds us in captivity long after the chains have been undone. It's rooted in pride, making us the central figure in everyone else's story. Notice how Elijah's answer to God, who has now appeared to him physically in fire and wind and an earthquake. And his answer is to talk about himself and his problems and how much bigger than God they must be. It's rooted in pride. So I want to be clear, self-pity and depression are not the same thing. Depression is a thing, it's not sin. Then self-pity comes along and says, hey, I see you're depressed. How about I make it worse? You're like, sure, sounds great. Let's do it. And you start, instead of talking to God, you start talking to your self-pity. Philip Ryken has this great quote in his commentary on this text where he says, when we struggle with spiritual depression, it is wise to figure out what we have been preaching to ourselves. Very likely we have been telling ourselves things like this. I deserve better than this. I can't take it anymore. My problems can't be solved. Nobody understands me. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I am the only one. If this is what we have been telling ourselves, then it's no wonder that we're discouraged. This is exactly what Elijah is. Elijah is repeating the, the dialogue that's going on in his head. He's saying it to God, and he's been probably musing and muttering on this from about the time Jezebel threatened him to this moment. He's been repeating this story, this version of events to himself. I'm all alone. Nobody cares. Nobody understands. It's all for nothing. I might as well quit. But none of that's true. You know the story of Elijah, which you will by the time we get through 2 Kings, is there's some pretty great stuff coming for Elijah. One of which is he never dies. He gets scooped up by a flaming angel chariot out of the sky and flies off while Elisha and everyone stands there with their jaws down. That's coming for Elijah. But he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that. All he knows, all he thinks he knows, is that voice of self-pity repeating to him over and over and over again. He's nodding, yes, that's very true. It's all for nothing. So as far as I can tell, God continues to whisper to Elijah in the cave. It's a wonderful 
metaphor, a wonderful picture. Instead, God commissions Elijah again. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. There in the cave in his discouragement, God calls Elijah to greater things. By the way, that uh, quiet whisper phrase is only used two other times in the Old Testament. Whenever you see that, you've got to pay attention. That means that the author is not just saying something that, that's in the, in the language that people say normally. He's pulled it from somewhere. And the two other places are in, with Job and in Psalms. In both places, it's talking about the comfort of God, the comforting voice of God to you in the midst of your suffering. So can God speak in an earthquake? Absolutely. Ask Moses. Can God speak in the fire? Absolutely. Elijah just saw it on Mount Carmel. Does he speak in the wind? Absolutely. But in this spot, in this cave, with Elijah in the place he's in, and when he calls on God, God does not come in the fire to consume the sacrifice. He does not come in the wind or in the earthquake. He whispers says, hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? What's going on? What voice do you imagine God speaking to you when you're in the pit? If I'm honest, I imagine him either angry or disappointed in me. I mean, the worst is when your parents are disappointed. I mean, that's the worst. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. What voice do you imagine? It tells you something about who you think God is. Do you imagine him whispering to you, saying gently, like a concerned father? Like a mother who just wants to make you a grilled cheese and give you a nap? Or do you imagine him angry? What's amazing here is that, again, God doesn't, rebuke Elijah what he does instead is he commissions him look at this 15 through 18 he says and the Lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria which is crazy because Syria is a pagan nation what does a prophet of God what business does he have going to a pagan nation to put in a king we'll read about that later a little teaser and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, Jehu's intense, we'll read about him later too, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, say that ten times in a row, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. There's that 7,000. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we'll read about all those people later. What's important here is you recognize that God has just recommissioned Elijah in the middle of the cave, depressed, and he doesn't even address his self-pity. He just says, hey, I've called you, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you Elisha, who's going to be a, a partner, and the one you're going to leave the ministry to so he answers that problem now there's another prophet he says i'm going to show you seven thousand faithful people in israel that i'm going to establish there and bless because they have not bowed down to baal 
pay attention, Elijah, because you're wrong. There's 7,000 that are still worshiping me, and I'm going to pull them out and set them aside. Even more exciting, God tells Elijah his plan to solve that Baal worship problem once and for all, which he does eventually do. God makes Elijah a key part of that plan, and God gives him a plan for raising up another prophet to come replace him. The one thing God does not do is kill him. Ever. Isn't that wonderful? God's got a sense of humor. I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if the primary reason God did the whole chariot thing was just to kind of poke at Elijah a little bit. The one thing I asked you to do, you wouldn't do. Instead, I'm just going to take you home without killing you. But I'll do the other stuff. I'll fulfill my call. I'll, get, I'll turn my people's hearts back to me. There'll be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of difficulty, but I'm going to do it. Eventually, Elijah will get the eternal rest he asked for, but not in the way he asked for it, and not just yet. God's really into saying soon. When's this going to be over? Soon. When is that? Silence. Soon from the perspective of eternity is kind of, you know, what is that? 30,000 years? <laughs> One day? We don't know. There's no mention of Jezebel here, but hope is restored to Elijah anyway. The Jezebel thing gets taken care of too in 2 Kings. God doesn't always solve our problems. I wish he did. At least not on the timetable we would like him to solve them. He seems perfectly willing to leave threats and concerns out there in our life without addressing them in a timely manner. God, clearly, I'm depressed because of this situation and that situation. I would really like you to solve that, and then I won't be sad anymore. And God often doesn't solve that problem. Instead, he just speaks to you and commissions you and says, I've called you, and I'm speaking to you. He comforts us, and then he calls us. He comforts us, and then he calls us. And he doesn't solve the problem like half the time. It's nice when he does, but half the time he doesn't because that's not the thing he's actually interested in. He wants us. Elijah has become convinced that all the victories and sacrifices of his past are of no avail. And God's answer, after comforting him with a snack and a nap, is to recommission him to his calling. So I've got five conclusions. I think I could probably do ten. What can we learn about our own dark night of the soul as well as how to help others experiencing that themselves? Number one, while it's understandable that Elijah wanted to die, it's also true that he was wrong. When you think it's all pointless and hopeless and your effort is to no avail, you need to hear me say this, you're wrong. It's understandable that you feel that way, but you're wrong. And if you just wait a minute, you'll see what God will do in your life through you in the world, that he's actually called you to do something important in your life. There was a study done years ago about, with married couples that were thinking about splitting up. And they just followed them for the years after. And they came back and they surveyed them five years later. And what they found was that the overwhelming majority of those couples were still together. 
just because they had waited five years. I'm not saying problems alone don't address them. But there's something about just saying, you know what, I'm not going to quit right now. I'm going to just wait a minute. And then say, you know what, I'm not going to quit right now. I'm just going to wait a minute. And there's something about the hopelessness or the hope that's required to just wait a minute. And this is also true of us. Because Elijah would see amazing things and he would see God answer his prayers. He just had to wait to see it. He could not see that from the juniper tree. He could not see it from the cave. He had to get out. Number two, the doubting Christian is not God forsaken. That's a quote from that book I mentioned to you. The doubting Christian is not God forsaken. Depression and doubt are miserable enough without self-pity entering the story and creating hopelessness and shame on top of that. You need to expect this attack against you when you're in that place and fight it. Number three, ruthlessly expel your religious pretense from your prayer life. There's none of that with Elijah. He comes right out of the gate with, I want to die. It's enough. I've had enough. Life is too much. I've done enough. It's all enough. I'm out. There's no religious pretense there. We need to get better at speaking honestly with God. Like, what are you pretending for? It's not like he doesn't know. Stop this. You ever catch yourself? Okay, I'm going, I'm going to have a prayer time now. Lord, I will, for the following five minutes, I will be addressing you directly. Here are my needs. And you spell them out in this weird, religious, fake way. And you've got to stop it. <laughs> be honest with them. Tell them what's going on. Speaking honestly with God leads to speaking honestly with each other. And this honesty with God and others leads to quicker healing and restoration. Often we spend more time speaking with that wicked nursemaid self-pity than we do with God about what's going on. And the sooner you get around to that, the faster you will get around to talking to each other that way and the faster you heal. Fourth, be careful how you judge others when they doubt or suffer depression especially if you've not experienced the same thing yourself. Do not presume yourself to be stronger than they are because you feel better than they do right now. One day you too may find yourself hiding in a cave like the great prophet Elijah wishing for an understanding and compassionate friend. Along with that, number five, is advice is the lowest form of ministry there is. This is what I learned the hard way pastoring for 15 plus years. Is when I look back on all the time, I've given some of y'all some really great advice. I went, mean, I have. Don't raise your hand. But I feel I've given you some great advice. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think giving people advice is bad. But when I look at that, all those times, I think, how many of those times did it become about me being impressive to you and you being grateful to me for all I've done for you? And how much of that actually addressed the real problem, which is you need an encounter with God? The times when I have shut my mouth and prayed and let you hear from God for you 
and then let him address your heart, usually with some kind of question like, what are you doing here? And you go, well, you start answering, and out comes the truth. Those times have been the most impactful to you, and I have sort of disappeared. You probably can't even remember that I was there. Advice, it's not not ministry, but it's the lowest form of ministry you can engage in. This is why Elijah went to Mount Horeb, because he understood he didn't need to ask somebody what to do or what he should be doing or what he should be feeling. He needed an encounter with God. He needed to hear from God. Your advice is not indispensable. If we just take all of your summed up knowledge and wisdom about how to live and how to do things, and we were to right now just remove it from the universe, the universe would continue to move forward without so much as a wobble. But if we were to take God's word and his presence out of the universe, the universe would cease to exist. And so what's better to lead someone by the hand to Christ and say, let's go to him together because what you need is to hear from him. You need to be in his presence and hear from him. You don't need of me talking to you and telling you what to do under the juniper tree. I'll just crawl under there, and the most I can really do is make you a sandwich and give you a blanket for a nice nap. That's the extent of what I can do about your problem. But what we can do together is go to God. The best thing you can do for a person that is depressed really is to make them a sandwich, hand them a blanket, and shut your mouth. It's just the best thing. I can tell you from experience, being on both sides of that. The greater the pain a person is in, the fewer words you should speak. That's from Spurgeon. That's not a direct quote, but that's one of the things I learned from them. The more pain they're in, the less you should talk. That's helpful, because if you're the caregiver in that moment, there's a compulsion to do something, isn't there? You feel this responsibility. I want to help. I'm your friend. I love you. I care about you. I want to help. And so I think I read this thing on the internet that you should do this or that, and you start giving them advice. And you soon realize you feel this kind of feeling like, shut up, shut up, shut up, stop talking. And you just kind of keep going because you feel like, oh, now I've started. You know, the best thing you can do, really, is just go make a grilled cheese, hand him a blanket, say, you just lay down, take a nap, and I'm going to pray for you. Now, doesn't that sound nice? And doesn't that sound easier than fixing it for them? Anytime you hear yourself saying, hopefully inside your head before it comes out of your mouth, you should just zip it. So I'd like to end by giving you an opportunity to have an encounter with God. To be in his presence and to hear from him. Uh, we're going to sing together in a minute, but I, what I'd like to do is if this connects with you at all, if you can identify with Elijah, whether you're currently in a pit of your own, you're currently, we'll, we'll put it in Elijah's language, under the juniper tree or hiding in a cave, then I want to pray for you. We're going to have some people up here to pray for you. If you're currently caring for someone who is 
under the juniper tree or hiding in a cave. I want to pray for you. If you regularly wrestle with this, maybe right now you're doing great, you're feeling good, everything's fine. But you know on some level because your history has taught you it's coming soon, then I want to pray for you. I feel like probably everybody in the room has just covered all of us. But I think it's important that we kind of respond the way Elijah did, which is to come to God. For the Christian, the cave, the place where we meet with God is not this building, it's each other. It's the body of Christ. That's where we go to meet with God. And so that's what I want to do right now. I don't want to give you a chance to come and meet with God. Let somebody else pray for you. We're not going to give you advice and tell you what to do. We're not going to tell you why, why are you in being so weak. Why don't you get up and get on with it. We're just going to let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Um, so if, that's, if you want to respond to that, come on up. And worship team, you can come up. Um, maybe we'll sing a song together in a minute. Maybe we won't. We'll just see what happens. If I could have some people come who could pray, so I'm not the only one, Jamie. I don't want to pick people out. If you want to get prayer, get prayer. But if you're available to give it, that would be great too. I'm just going to pray just a kind of overarching prayer and then you guys just take time to just if you're receiving from God I just want you to tell and be honest with him even if you know it's just a bunch of self-pity <laughs> just tell him right just say it say what's in your heart say what tell him the dialogue you're having even if you know it's wrong. I want you to be honest with him. So Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to come to these, these beloved children of yours with a whisper. Gentle and quiet. God, that they would see the fire of your presence passed them by. They would see the wind of your presence passed them by. They would feel the earthquake of your holiness passed them by. And instead, they would hear you right now whispering to them, tell me what's going on. Talk to me. God, I pray that we would be patient with our sadness. That we would long for joy. That we would be patient with you. So I pray you just meet each one of them right now as we pray.
worship. And he was uh, a person in a bed of mud. And I don't know if you've ever been in mud before, but it's very slippery. And this person was trying to get up, trying to stand up. And every time, kept failing and failing. Getting back, getting back. And he's getting, he's getting exhausted. And I feel like some of us are there, just trying to get up, trying to figure out a way to stand up on our own. And it's exhausting. And sometimes we think, well, God is not going to come and pick me up. He's too pure. He's too clean. His white robe is going to get dirty with my mess, my stickiness. But God is gracious. He sent his son for us in the middle of our mess to pick us up and get us out of there. To get us out of that mud, even if that means getting dirty. He knows us. He knows our heart. He knows where we are. He did that for us. So all we got to do instead of fixing our own problem is surrendering ourselves to God. Say, God, I can't do this on my own. I keep getting up and I keep getting, getting falling down. I need you. I need you, God. Take my life. I can't do it in my own strength. He's not going to just fix your problem, but he's going to pick you up of the place where you are and make you clean.